0: All right. Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter to you all. He is risen. He is risen, he is risen indeed. Right on. Hey, would you guys like to sit down? Well, go ahead then. Yeah, it's good. Leading from the back today. All right. Hey, my name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad you're here. Really delighted that you're here to celebrate the resurrection of Christ with us. We think this is the highlight of the year, and to be able to celebrate who he is and what he's done for us is really an amazing thing, so thank you for being here. If you're in the tent today, thank you for being here with us as well. We're glad you're here, and hopefully you're having a great time in the tent, and uh, yeah, a little wooing going on, and uh, yeah, so thanks for that. These guys are wooing because they got a seat inside. No, it's not really how it goes. (laughs) Anyway, we're glad you're here, everybody, so... um, let me ask you a question as we think about the resurrection today and, and some connections with this story of resurrection and what it looks like and what it, what it is like. Uh, how many of you like to be served? Uh, 15%? Kind of what I'm, I'm trying to measure out just by what I get. 15%. It's like, yeah, I like to be served. Here's my deal. And I'm a little, I'm a little embarrassed about this because I know that Jesus came to serve. So it's like a little awkward for me, but... I, I really like to be served. I like it, you know. And, and what's even more embarrassing to me in this regard is I really like to be served well. I mean, is that, do you understand that? I like to be served well. Does anybody like to be served well? Oh, I asked the wrong question the first time. If I were to ask about this, the well part, you're like, yeah, I want to be served well. It's a little bit weird. You go, I'm worshiping Jesus. I'm following Jesus who came as a servant, yet I know that I like to be served. And I like to be served well. So I was officiating a wedding for some friends about, I think it was about 10 years ago. And uh, some people that I love, and they invited me to officiate their wedding, which is always an amazing honor when someone asks you to be engaged in their wedding at all. And when you get the chance to officiate it, that's really a a great gift. So we had this wedding. It was beautiful. It was out in a garden setting up in the foothills. And just a beautiful time in their wedding ceremony. Then we all went inside to this little kind of restaurant gathering room kind of place and we had the reception and a meal together and uh it, the, it was there was more people in the room than they were really, you know, set up for. So we're all crammed in these tables going to have this meal, but it's kind of the, one of those places where, you know, there's somebody sitting right smack behind you so you can't really move your chair out, you can't get up get up and down and all that kind of stuff. Well, that makes it really hard for the servers that are in the room. So our server came to our table, and we had, I think we got choices of, you know, like three different dishes that you might be able to have for dinner. So the server comes into the table, and, and I was there with my wife and my, at that time, 16-year-old daughter. And we're all kind of huddled in around this table. The server comes in. She takes our order, and she says, while she's taking the order, does anybody want a glass of wine? And I'm like, oh, I don't really care for that today. That's fine. And, and she didn't ask my 16-year-old daughter, which was appropriate, and that's good. And then she came to my wife, and my wife goes, oh, I'd like to have a glass of wine. Oh okay, that's all cool. So then the server makes her way back out through the tables back to the kitchen wherever they do their thing, and so after a while, she comes back now I don't really know the etiquette of serving wine, you know you're probably not supposed to you know handle the whole glass and stuff when you bring it to the table and so this this girl's following the rules right she she's got this she's got one of those long stem glasses <laughs> and, she, and and she's got it on a tray, and you can, there's not oh you see where this is going. Yeah, well, wait for it. We didn't really see where it was going. Not yet, but she's got this tray. And she's got it balanced on her fingertips above her head because there's no room to you know, keep it low, so she got it up here high. Now, I think, I'm not sure about this, but I think the deal is when you're going to serve that glass of wine, when you get it there, you're supposed to take it off the tray and hand it to the person or set it on the table. But instead, she forgot that part, and so she just got her tray up here and she just starts leaning over the table and so does the tray and so does the glass of wine. And you already saw where this was going, except that none of it got on my wife. <laughs> Splashed on my 16-year-old daughter and all down my suit. Like my, you know, my, you probably don't know my suit because you've never seen it. <laughs> I, wear, I wear my suit to weddings and funerals and Chamber of Commerce events. That's where I wear that. So you've you probably mostly never seen it, but anyways, all down my suit. And I'm like, I, I don't, I'm not even sure I can drive home. If I make a mistake and somebody pulls me over, they're gonna take one smell of me and they're gonna put me away. Like, this is not helpful. And then she spent the rest of the dinner giggling. <laughs> hey, she thought this was the funniest thing ever, you know? Oh, my daughter, my husband, all covered with wine. It's like she's just giggling. Everybody else in the room thought she'd already been drinking like a lot of wine. <laughs> I like to be served well. You probably like to be served well, I imagine, in your life. And the places you go, when I go to a restaurant and I'm paying for the service, I'm going to give a good tip. Like, I, I, I want you to smile. You know, I want you to be prompt. I want you to bring my food while it's still hot. I like that. I want you to bring the bills so I don't have to wait forever for it. You know, I, I, I just like good service. Well, there's a very interesting connection with resurrection, which is why we came together today, and service See, one of the things you'll find out as you read through the scripture is you cannot have the resurrection until you bow. You cannot have the resurrection until you put yourself in a spot where you are under the lordship of Jesus. You can't have the resurrection until you bow. If you have your Bible, I want to show you a story that's in there. So pull it out. If you don't have a Bible with you, but you've got a smartphone with you, you can download this thing called the YouVersion Bible app. And we've got some notes on there. We've got the scriptures pulled out, so you can read it if you like. Or you're certainly welcome just to listen, and uh, I'll tell you the story as we go along. So John chapter 20 is where I want you to see today. John chapter 20, it's the story. It's one account of the story of the resurrection of Christ. So just to give you some background story. So Jesus has already gone to the cross. He's already died on the cross, been buried. Now it's on Sunday morning. Now we're getting to the resurrection part that we came for for Easter, right? John chapter 20, verse 1 says, Early in the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. They still didn't understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to where they were staying. I love I love that story. It's such a weird story. I mean, so, I mean think about think about what's going on here. It's uh there's just some some funny there's a there's a race between two disciples of Jesus. It's in the Bible. There's a race and one disciple's faster than the than the other. And the one disciple who ends up saying he's the fastest one, he's the one that got there first, he tells us He's the one that Jesus loved best. Do you play that game in your family? You know, if you have more than one sibling in your family, you ever play that game? It's like, well, mom and dad like me best. You know, or of course, they like her best. You know, of course, that's how. You know, you ever play that game? Here's the disciples. Imagine the disciples of Jesus. Jesus is on this high mission. And he's got these 12 guys who follow him around the countryside. They're trying to learn from him. They call him disciples or followers. And, uh, and there's was one disciple. His name's John. He goes, hey, you guys. Maybe he gets all the other disciples together one day. He goes, hey, you guys. When this is all over, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to call it John. Okay, a little humility here on, on the, you know, it's like, and then he writes, and he writes this whole story. He goes, and, and, and by the way, I'm, I'm the one that, that Jesus loved best, and I'm fast, you know. So here's this whole story that rolls out that way. Now back up a little bit. There, at the beginning of the story, there's a woman there named Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary doesn't show up prominently in Jesus' story at all until this moment. She does appear once or twice in the various accounts, but but not in a prominent way. Not like Peter showed up in the story. Not like John showed up in the story. Here's Mary, and finally, at the resurrection of Christ, she's the one who shows up at the tomb first. And she's got this prominent role. And she comes to the tomb, and as she's walking up, she realizes that the stone that they had rolled in front of the door to the tomb has been moved. And she never stopped to look inside. Or I would say... She never stooped to look inside. She just saw the stone was rolled away. And so she turned around and she ran back to where the disciples were. And she tells them, they've taken the Lord and we don't know where they put him. Well, she doesn't know that. She knows she doesn't know where they put him, but they they didn't put him anywhere. She doesn't know what the story's about. She just thinks they took him. They took his body. So she tells the disciples that. So John and, and Peter, they're like, "Wow, well, we ought to go check it out. So they start running to the tomb. Only John's younger and faster. And so he gets there first. But he's also young and he's frightened. So he, he's like, I'm not, I'm not going in the tomb. I mean, how, how many of you just go bursting into a tomb? She's like, well, you kind of expect the young guys to do it. But that's not John. He gets there and he bends over and he looks in. But he doesn't go in. And then after a little while, his 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 companion, Peter, you know, he's heavier and a little chubbier and not quite in shape, so he comes huffing and puffing up, but he's full of bravado, and he goes, I'm going in. And he stoops, and he goes right into the tomb, and he looks around at the linen that's there, the cloth that was wrapped around Jesus' head, kind of scratches his head and doesn't know what's going on. And then finally John gets over his cowardice, and he comes into the tomb, and he's looking around at what's going on. He scratches his head and can't figure it out either, and it says they still didn't understand from the Scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And so they went home. Actually, they were, they were staying somewhere, but they went, they went back to where they were staying. It's like, oh, I don't know. Do you know what happened? I don't know. I don't, well, let's go. And they left. And Mary is left standing there, the one who never stopped or stooped to look in to the tomb. You cannot have resurrection until you bend down. You cannot have resurrection until you bow. There are some places in Israel, in the land of Israel, where you can't come in unless you bow. Think about doing this at Lakeside. <laughs> no, there's this church. There's this church in this in the town of Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. It's up on a hillside near the city square, and it's called the Church of the Nativity. They don't know for sure, but some people su- suspect that this is a spot where Jesus was actually born in that manger scene, you know, two thousand years ago. And so, when they when they thought when someone discovered, it, they go, "Oh, we think this is the right spot." They built a church on it. They called it the Church of Jesus' Birth or the Church of the Nativity, and it's supposedly on the site where Jesus was born. Now, when they built it, it was this beautiful, magnificent church, and it had a magnificent entryway into the church. So it was so appealing, you'd, you'd come up to Bethlehem and you go, oh, that's it, let's go. And you'd, you'd, you'd want to rush right in this church because it was so inviting and, and big and majestic. So you'd come in. The problem was during the Crusades, this is a really, really old church, during the Crusades, the knights who would come into, into Israel to fight their battles and things, the knights would come in on their horses and they'd see this grand entrance to the church and so they'd ride their horse right into the church. I, I, I don't know, maybe they I thought they are horse needed to get saved or you know hey my horse needs to be baptized i don't know what the they're riding their horse in the church and the priests are going no 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 horses in the church and the knights were like i have a sword i can do what i want and the priests were like well we have stones and mortar we can do what we want too and so they started lowering the door They started putting stones and bricks and mortar in and they just lowered the height of the door. So if you go to the church of the nativity in the city of Bethlehem today, you'll find the main entry to the door is about this tall. You cannot come in until you bow. There's another church in Jerusalem. It's called the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, which is a really weird name but it probably sounded better than the church of the holy tomb. But that's really what it is. It's a church. They think, and again, some people did some research and they, and they decided hundreds of years ago, they thought this must be the place where Jesus was actually buried in this tomb. So they built a church on top of it. And now you can go to this church, the church of the holy sepulcher, and you can walk around that church and there are several outcroppings of rock there. And in these outcroppings of rock, there are tombs carved into the rock. And they know, they've studied this, and they found out these tombs date back to the time of Jesus. And you can, go, you can go into that church, you can look around, and you can see these tombs, and you can actually go in the tomb. But the door to all these tombs is about this tall. And the only way to go into the tomb is to bow. In the 1800s, there was another discovery of another site where there are some tombs. And some of the geography of this site seems to match up with the words of the scriptures. And so this other site is now called the site of the garden tomb. And you can go there and nobody knows. Maybe this is where Jesus was buried. Maybe the Church of the Holy Sepulcher is where he was buried. But even if you go to the garden tomb, if you want to go inside that tomb, which you can do, the door is only this tall. And the only way to get in is to bow. You can't have the resurrection until you bow. Now I want you to see this from a different perspective in another part of the story. If you rewind the story from resurrection morning and you you go backwards to like past Saturday when Jesus was, his body was in the tomb and, and past Friday night into Friday afternoon, Jesus was nailed to a cross and he died there. And if you rewind the story farther back than that, you go back to the trial on Friday morning and and really early Friday morning. If you wind the clock back farther than that, you'll get back to the time of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and the agony that he went through there in his prayers. And then if you wind it back one tick further, you'll get back to the evening, the night before Jesus' crucifixion. And on the evening of 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 his crucifixion, Jesus gathered his disciples together for a last supper. And I don't, I, don't, I don't know what the invitation looked like. I don't know if Jesus went to all of his disciples and goes, Hey, you guys, come, come, to, this, come to this dinner party tonight. It's going to be our last supper. They're going to make a mural of it someday. It's going to be beautiful. You should be in it. <laughs> I don't know if that's how he laid it out for them, but the disciples came together. They're having this last meal. They don't know it's the last meal, but Jesus knows. And something amazing is going to happen in this meal that sets us up for understanding part of the resurrection. The story is found in John chapter 13, a few chapters to the left of where we were in John 20. Here's how the story begins. John 13, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Now stop just there for a second. When Jesus went to the cross, when Jesus was anticipating the cross on the night before, he knew things. When he gathered his disciples together for the Last Supper, he knew things. He knew that his time on earth was short. He was in his last hours on earth. He knew that one of his own disciples, one of the 12 that he picked, named Judas Iscariot, was already in agreement with the, with the Jewish authorities to betray Jesus. He knew that. Jesus knew that. And Jesus knew that he had come from the Father and that he was going back to the Father. And the Father had put all authority into Jesus' hands. Everything on earth was under his feet, it says. In other words, he had power to do anything he wanted to do. Now what would you do? You got, you, got, you got your friends, your best friends together for a meal now and you know that your time on earth is short. You don't have many options left in terms of time and how much time you have to, to run things out. You know you've got a traitor in your midst and you have all power in the world. What are you going to do? Here's what Jesus did. Verse 4. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer ...clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet... ...drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Because of everything that he knew... ...he got up, wrapped himself in a towel and began to serve his servants... By washing their feet. John says, when he loved his disciples, he loved them to the end. Which means maybe that he loved them to the last breath of his life, which he did. But it also means that he loved them to the full extent of his love. And here's how it rolled out. He washed their feet. You ever been to a foot washing? Yeah, have you ever had your feet washed? Sometimes Christians do this in ceremonies, like Jesus washed feet, so like we ought to wash one another's. I hate that. I have like I have touchy feet. I shouldn't even. I just creeps me out to even talk about having somebody touch my feet. Like that's just awful. My my wife, she she likes foot massages, you know. And you're supposed to you're supposed to love one another like like you love yourself. And I'm like, man, I love myself, so I don't let people touch my feet. So I don't want to touch her feet because. creeps me out and I don't want to creep her out it's like it's a weird thing in our marriage because she loves it and I don't love it they had this deal in the ancient culture of Israel they walked most of places where they went they wore sandals not shoes like we do or they went barefoot and they would walk on these roads now the roads were dusty not because they were dirt roads just because dust gathered on them they didn't have street sweepers like we have and so the roads would get dusty And whether they were marble roads, which they had, or whether they were cobblestone roads, which they had, or whether they were dirt roads, they would get dusty. And so when you walked around through town, your feet would get dirty. And so it was customary in your house to have a pitcher of water right by the front door and a basin, like a bucket. And you could, when you came into, when you came into your house and when you came into someone else's house, you'd take the pitcher, you'd pour the water into the bucket or the basin, and then you'd wash your feet, clean up a little bit, and then, and then get started with things. It's a little different than our culture. You know, we say, hey, come on over, wash your hands, let's eat. They'd go, hey, come on over, wash your feet, let's eat. Now, if you were really rich as a family and you were able to have servants you could have a servant stand at the door and wash people's feet when they came in so they wouldn't have to do it themselves but it was such a menial ugly job i mean it's kind of a disgusting job who wants that job there was a rule if you were a jewish family and you had jewish servants or jewish slaves you could not require your jewish servants to wash the feet of other people There were only two classes of people who were permitted to wash feet for others in that culture. One was Gentile slaves, non-Jews. And the other was women. Now... uh, I'm not saying that's, we would not do that in our culture, and, and you know, the scripture brings, brings us along through that. But that was the culture that they were in. In fact, there's a story right before chapter 13 where we are. There's a story in chapter 12 where a woman came and she washed Jesus' feet. Nobody objected to that. Except they obje- Nobody objected to the woman washing his feet. What they objected to was she spent too much money on perfume that she was using to wash his feet. So, usually, when you come into a house, if it was a wealthy person's house, they would have a servant there, a Gentile servant, to wash your feet, and then you can get on with the process of having the meal. In the middle of dinner, Jesus gets up, and he takes off his outer robe, and he wraps himself in a towel, and he takes the only position you can take to wash someone else's feet. Hands and knees. You can only wash someone's feet from your hands and knees. And Jesus takes that position. Now, the custom was that when you were going to wash you're going to wash your own feet, you'd do it when you came in the house. Or if there was a servant to wash your feet, they would wash your feet as you came into the house. And so as people trickled in for the party or for the banquet or for dinner or whatever, they they would get their feet washed as they came in. So no, there wasn't a line. There weren't people like standing around watching what was going on. But when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he didn't do it that way. The evening meal was already being served, John writes. And in the middle of that process of the serving of the meal, Jesus stands up. He's got everyone's attention. Everybody's eyes are on Jesus. Everybody's in the room, including Judas, who was about to betray him. Which, by the way, time out for a second. Sometimes, you know, I, some, I know sometimes for Easter, you know, you come with your family or friends or whatever. You're like, you, you don't usually come to church because, you know, you're afraid the church roof would cave in. You know, people tell me that. It's like, oh, I can't come to church because the roof would cave in. I'm like, you should try it be really fun to watch if that really happened but look here's judas and if anybody if the roof is going to cave in on anybody it's going to be judas who actually betrayed jesus to death but he's in the room and he's at the table in the middle of the meal jesus gets up from the meal wraps himself in a towel gets down on his hands and knees and he goes around the table and he begins to wash the feet of every single person at the table including judas and all eyes are on jesus Because the disciples cannot imagine what they're witnessing. That the king of the universe is wrapped in a towel on his hands and knees, washing their dirty feet. Having loved his own, he loved them to the full extent of his love. You cannot have the resurrection... Until you bow. Now, Jesus was the master, and he had servants, he had followers. He could have said to somebody else, Hey, I, I want you to do the, do the foot washing today. I mean Jesus could have gone to Peter this would have been really this would have been intense and funny and really interesting Jesus could have gone to Peter in advance of that last supper and said hey Pete let's do something that'll freak out the rest of the disciples tonight this would be really fun Pete when the when the when the meal's happening you get up take off your robe and wrap a towel around your waist and go around to every one of the other disciples and and wash their feet that'd be so cool that'd be so shocked But that's not what happened. No, Jesus is the one who got down on his hands and knees and washed the feet of his disciples. Jesus is the one. Because you cannot have the resurrection until you bow. Even if your name is Jesus. The resurrection, which is the story of the most powerful event ever to happen in the human in human history, the story of resurrection, is tied together inextricably with foot washing, with servanthood, with giving ourselves to others. You want to follow Jesus? You want to be a follower of Jesus? To be a follower of Jesus requires first that we bow before him. You can't have resurrection until you bow, even if you're Jesus. It's why he washed the feet of the disciples and didn't ask someone else to do it. And so when we celebrate the resurrection, we celebrate the resurrection of the foot washer, the rise of the foot washer, the ultimate servant. Jesus is not the kind of guy you expect to rise from the dead. And maybe you don't expect anybody to rise from the dead, but Jesus would not be the one. He acted like a Gentile servant. He spoke with women, which again, in that culture, was far different than it would be in our culture today. Yet he's the one who rose from the grave. If you remember that story, we left them off in John 20 with the disciples going back to the place where they were staying. But let me go back and pick up the rest of the story of the resurrection, at least in this, in this telling of it. John chapter 20, verse 11 says this, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him, and I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, it's Sunday morning. And Peter and John have already come to the tomb and gone back to where they were staying. They don't know what's going on. They don't know how to figure this out. They're scratching their head about the whole event. Now Mary's left standing outside the tomb all by herself, crying. And finally, she decides to bend over and look inside the tomb. When she looks inside the tomb, things change for her because as she looks inside the tomb, she sees that there are two angels inside. I don't know if you've ever seen an angel, much less two at one time. But they're terrifying beings. And she looks inside, there's these two angels in there, and they're compassionate to her. They go, woman, why are you crying? She's like, because they moved the Lord, and I don't know where they put his body. And then she has total disregard for angels, and she just turns her back on them. That's ridiculous. Nobody turns her back on an angel. She turns her back on the angels, and she runs smack into the gardener. Well, she thought he was a gardener. See, people have been mistaking the identity of Jesus for 2,000 years. And in our generation millions of people mistake the identity of Jesus. And probably in her case, it was forgivable because he's in the garden and maybe he had a rake and he was pushing bark around trying to make it look beautiful until she found out who he was. We don't really know what he was doing, but she turns around, she runs into him. She goes, hey, if you're the gardener, you just, just tell me where you put him. I'll, I'll get him. I'll get him out of your way. I'll get him out of your hair. I'll, I'll fix it. And she doesn't recognize him until he addresses her by her name. And then she knows. And she bows at his feet. You can't have the resurrection until you bow. The historical record says that Jesus died on a cross. That's pretty clear from history. The biblical record says Jesus died on the cross to remove the barrier between us and God. We call it sin. Jesus died to remove that. That's the biblical record. The historical record suggests that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. There's no no body in a grave in Jerusalem who's got Jesus' name on it. There were 500 witnesses that saw Jesus after he would risen from the grave. The historical record suggests very strongly that Jesus rose from the grave. But the biblical record says he rose from the grave to give us life. But that, only, that life only comes to us when we bow by faith before Jesus. See, that's the story of Easter. That's what it's about. That's, that's what the resurrection story is about. It's like it's an invitation from God to us to join Christ in bowing before our Father, saying, I will trust you. I will trust you for this resurrection, resurrection life that you offer. That step of faith starts with a bow of humility, of acknowledgement of need, of saying, I know I need a Savior. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the only Savior that God has sent. And we all get the choice to bow before him or not. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for every good thing you have done. Everything you have done, Father, is good. We don't always get to see those uh, things that you're doing among us or around us. But we know this, that when you sent Jesus, your son, into this world, you sent him for good. And he came as one who served, not someone who came to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for others. Lord, thank you for that. I pray for us today, Lord. There are are many of us in the room who have been following Jesus for a long time. We bowed a long time ago and have lived a life bowing before him by faith, saying, Jesus, I need you. And so, Lord, thank you for those. May this day of celebration of resurrection be a beautiful day in our lives today as we honor you. And day after day after day, may that be true of us where we live in the power and light of the resurrection. But, Lord, there are some among us who are still investigating and still trying to weigh out what they want. What, what do they believe? How do they want to proceed? And so I just pray for them that you would open their heart to you today, that you would open their eyes to you today, so that they would be able to realize and acknowledge that they need a Savior. To believe that Jesus Christ is the only Savior, Father, that you have sent, and to choose to follow you by faith. Lord, would you lead us in that process today as we turn our lives over to you by faith today. Thank you. We love you, Lord. Amen.